Listen, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Today we get to the end of the text of the Gospel of Luke. By the way, on uh, the links below or in person here, there are sermon notes. For me, it's always helpful to follow along, jot down my questions, jot down things um, that I want to remember, maybe things that I want to do. Uh, There's always loads of extra scriptures and things to ponder throughout the week. So I would just invite you to, to enter in and engage with that. You know, how important are endings? Think about your favorite movies. Think about the way that you read a book. You can kind of feel it in a book. You know there's only a certain number of pages left. Or how about a TV series, the finale of a long-beloved TV series? You know, the finale is paramount. So the ultimate ending, uh, as people see it here on earth, is death. If you've not been to a funeral lately, of course, many haven't been to a funeral lately because they've changed. Um, But I would say this, just give it time. Um, Even if you don't get invited to many funerals like I do, um, or if you choose to ignore the funerals that you are invited to, um, I promise you that you will eventually get to at least one funeral. And surprise, you'll be the guest of honor, right? We all know that this is coming. We all know that our own death is arriving. In fact, this is actually why some people avoid funerals. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to ponder some of those realities. Let me say this, that today is great news for every person on the planet. Here's why. Um, We know that Jesus is alive and well and offers and extends these assurances to us. Where is Jesus and what is he doing and how is he doing? We're going to look at all of that this morning. It's important because it leads to questions like this. Where will I go when I die? How are my friends and neighbors and, and loved ones doing that have already died? And as the phrase goes, met their end. Today is a, a text on the ascension of Jesus. It's the last scene in Luke. To read our scripture this morning, I thought we would choose someone who has gone away from us, the dearly departed. No, they haven't died. They have just moved. Remember that moving out of state is our new state pastime, um, and many, many people are doing that. And I thought, what a great thing that we can have, still have people participate in our church service via video. So this is from the Gadino family who moved out to Colorado a little bit ago. Listen to Luke um, 24, verses 50 to 53 from them right now. Hello, NBC. This is Pete Godino, representing the Godino family from Golden, Colorado. We miss you all greatly, and we look forward to when we will be reunited. The scripture that I'm reading today is from Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Luke 24, 50-53. Awesome. Thanks, Pete, for jumping in on that. They were in our community group every week, and we miss them and their four kids dearly. So Luke ends where he begins. Like geographically, he ends and begins in the same place. It's the temple. Think back to the beginning of Luke, right? There's Zechariah in the temple. What has he promised there? He's promised that his wife Elizabeth is going to give birth to to a son. Who's that? And the crowd in person said, John the Baptist, not Jesus. I know the answer is like, Jesus, I just tuned back in. The answer must be Jesus. No, it's Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. So it begins with Zechariah in the temple, and it ends with the disciples in the temple blessing God. Remember Luke begins with great joy that would be good news for all people? Does that sound a lot like joy to the world, right? Merry Christmas. Joy to the world is simply Luke set to music. Look at how Luke ends his story. He ends with great joy that would be good news for all the people. Bookends, beginnings and endings are so important. They're so key to the story that we find ourselves looking at, but also for the story that we are participating in. Here's a little riddle for you at home and for you here uh, in front of me. When is the end 
only just the beginning. Okay, think about this for a second. There's probably a really long list of these, but I've just sort of been chewing on these for a little bit. Um, How about a relay race, right? The end of your part as you pass the baton is really just the beginning for the next person. How about pregnancy or adoption? There's a long process of bringing a child into your home, whether you are physically pregnant or they sometimes call it paperwork pregnant when you're trying to adopt a child. Um, And once you get that child into your home, and, 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 and starting your life, you're really just beginning, right? It's the end of pregnancy, it's the end of the adoption process, but just the beginning of your journey together. Here's another one. Dominic, this is for you, Mr. 100%. Listen carefully. Here's another time uh, that the end is really only the beginning. It's a Tom Brady-led dynasty, right? At the end of a dynasty period for the Patriots is only the beginning for those people in Tampa Bay. And the rest of the country throws up, right? We all don't like it. Here's one more. The story of Jesus. This is the end of the story of Jesus here. But isn't it just the beginning of the rest of eternity? It's the beginning of the, it's it's the very beginning and start of all that's going to come following that. So we are wrapping up the gospel of Luke today. We're, we're, We're wrapping up the text portion, but we're actually taking time next week to sort of sit in our time in Luke together. Uh, Sharon Adam was the author of our post um, article this, this Monday. Every Monday we send out a churchwide email. If you want to get involved in that, uh, info at nbcsj.org, we'll get you on that list. But the word for her for 2021 was the word ponder. I read this article, I, I texted her, I said, hey, great minds think alike, let me tell you how I'm starting the service. But I'm going to quote her. She says, when I try to live out the word ponder, it seems like not rushing into the next thing, but stopping, thinking, and praising. Friends, this is what we're going to do next week. We're going to take an entire Sunday, and guess what the text is? The Gospel of Luke. We're just going to, instead of rushing on to the next book, the next series, the next thing, we are going to model and practice Patient presence. Stopping and soaking in what God has already given to us in the gospel of Luke. In fact, I think we should concentrate on being faithful stewards of what we've already been entrusted instead of asking for more. Aren't we always going, God, speak to me. God, have a word for me. I want more. Give me a word. And God's saying, we've been in Luke for a while now. The Bible holding that you're holding in your hand is there. Be a faithful steward with what you've already been entrusted. Let's be thankful for all the ways that God has already spoken to us. Instead of what we're thinking is, is, I need one more word from you, God. Let's go back and think of what we already have. Let me tell you a helpful tool. This is a helpful tool. I showed you this when we, when we first got our You First theme uh, sticker. I put this on a journal, a specific journal that I use for my community group questions. It is now filling up with my written responses. Why do I write responses? Why do I think you should write responses before you come to group? Here's why. Sometimes when you get to group and one person starts to answer the question, the way they answer it, people adjust to that. They go, oh, that's what the question means. And they start to answer it in that same way. Whereas if we're just sitting with scriptures open, reviewing the text that we just had, and and responding to the text, responding to what God spoke to us on Sunday morning, we can write down our response, and it keeps you from processing verbally for the next 20 minutes while your groupmates go, get to the point. This forces you to write some things down. In fact, here's what I would say about this. God has gone on written record with you. He wrote the Bible. He saw fit to write things down. How about this? How about if you go on written record with God? So just write down your key learnings. Write down your aha moments. Write down your questions. Don't let them ever be nebulous and go, I just have so many questions. What are they? I don't really know. The enemy wants to work in your life in that way. Write them down. Pursue them. Come back a week later, a day later, a year later, and cross it off. Say, myth busted, problem solved. I don't have that question anymore. That's to rest. How about your action items? What if you write down, God, out of your word, I'm recognizing I need to obey in this area. I will stop doing X. I will start doing X. 
How about putting a due date next to it? I don't get things done much if I don't have a due date next to it. So go on written record with the Lord. This isn't, this isn't for your group mates. This is primarily for you and God. So that's a little tool that I use. Invite you to do that as well. So next week is all going to be about review. And, and my invitation for you is to reflect on what you have already been given. Remember in the, in the Everyday Bible series that we walked through in January... I said this, that, that it was really a, a call for Christians to radically alter your life. Listen to this. To radically alter your life, to ensure that you are reading the Bible daily, understanding it correctly, and living accordingly. Why do I say radically alter your life? Because reading the Bible daily, understanding it correctly, and then living accordingly takes effort. It takes practice. It takes wisdom. It actually takes a community to say, hang in there. So that was the positive call. Here's here's sort of the call against. It's also a call against our propensity to idolize all things new. Every day doesn't just mean daily. Every day can also mean commonplace, ordinary, uninteresting. Church, I assure you, this is where the battle will take place to reading your Bible every day. It's so common. You've had that Bible since your grandma gave it to you when you were a kid. But here's what we know in life. The best things can become boring things simply because they aren't the new thing. Let me say that again. The best things can become boring things for the simple fact that they're not the new thing. Church, don't idolize the new. God has and is speaking through his timeless word. That's what we're doing here. That's why we take weeks and weeks on a single book of the Bible. So if you want to participate next week, here's what you can do. The last action item for community group questions this week is simply go back and review. You know what I'm doing? I am listening to the whole gospel of Luke. Started this week, I'm going to finish this next week. I just want to sort of hear it read to me again. The whole gospel, it's going to take about three chapters a day, and it's just going to stir up remindings of what God's given to us. If you have a favorite passage, jot it down. Be be prepared to participate in the live stream or in our outdoor service. We're going to have time to sort of talk about here's favorite passages and why. Here's some changed thinking or changed behavior that has gone on over this series. Here is a new or renewed uh, pattern of worship that I have engaged in, and, and, and any other uh, sort of insight um, because of our time invested with Luke. Here's an idea, and, and your community group leaders have already gotten this, but consider doing this in community. I hope we get a couple of videos that sort of show uh, video images of people reading or giving some of their insights. We'll try to figure out how to splice that into a service for, that, for, for next week. All right, so that's all next week, but first we have a gospel to finish right? We've been through all the texts. We're getting to the last few verses today. And what we're going to see is this, that the end is really just the beginning. The good doctor turns over his practice, as in Jesus is leaving his work and ministry in the hands of his team. Why? Because it's better for them, and he's got other things to be doing, which we'll look at in just a moment. We just sang the song Remedy, so, so fitting for this good doctor theme that we've been looking at. It's not just that Jesus brings the cure, it's that Jesus is the cure, and then says us, that last line, Jonathan Ledison, let us bring the remedy. Great commission. We're going to get to all of this. So why the good doctor? We called it the good doctor series because of this. Luke is a physician by profession. So we've used that lens of his personality to understand the scriptures. It's not just context and words that gives you understanding into the scripture. It's who's writing it. God uses their their personality. He uses their background and their experience to record truth. And what Luke records are both the character and the work of Jesus Christ. And we highlight it in this, this idea of the good doctor. Good refers to his character. I know this is a little hard to see, but look carefully at at this. You see the word God built into good. 
That's really intentional. And once it's shown to you, you can't unsee it, right? It's kind of subtle. If you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. That's the deity of Jesus. The deity of Jesus is sitting right there, plain as day for people to see. For those who have eyes to see, they see it. For those who have ears to hear, they hear it. But many, if not most, miss it. Good refers to his character. Luke 18, 19 is one of our key verses for this, for this book. And Jesus said to them, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What is Jesus saying there? He's not denying he's good. He is good. In fact, in Jesus, we see the embodiment of good. It's not just the, that he exhibits goodness some of the times. It's that he embodies goodness itself, which fits with the claims of Luke that Jesus is God in a body. How about the word doctor? Doctor refers to his work. If good is his character, doctor refers to his work. The little subtitle he views this whole series is hopeful healing for all. That's from Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Everyone wants to attach Jesus to their program, right? To their slogan, to their thing of what he came to do. Jesus told us what he was on a mission to do. He offers healing for everyone. But like any surgeon you will ever go visit, trust is required and permission must be granted to operate on you. Man, that's so much like Jesus. In fact, all doctors require faith. Isn't that true? Jesus is no different. A doctor asks you to trust them with your life. You commit wholeheartedly to a doctor and the prescriptions on incomplete information. This is true of every doctor you have ever met. Doesn't mean you go in blindly. God doesn't ask for blind faith from us either. But you can check references, you can ask around, you can sort of dabble and experience a little bit. But eventually, faith is required to move forward with your doctor. Welcome to life with Jesus. You can hear of other people's experiences. You can check his references. You can kind of be on the sidelines, but eventually there's a moment of trust that you accept the responsibility of. So this is the practice that Jesus turns over. It's not strictly a medical practice, although physical healings occur in abundance. No, this is holistic healing the likes of which the world has never seen and the likes of which the world has never improved upon. So I'm going to look at the the passage this way in in the frame of, of an ending and a beginning. So first of all, the ascension of Jesus is an ending, as in it's over. Luke signals this final scene way back in chapter 9, verse 51, when he writes this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. We're about to enter the Easter season. We're in it with Lent. We understand as Christians, as you read this, and you kind of know how the story goes, when the days had come for him to be taken up, that's the ascension. That's the passage we're in. And he's setting his face with, with purpose, with resolve to go to Jerusalem. Why is that a big deal? Because we know what happens in Jerusalem. It's where all the prophets are killed and Jesus is no different. So Luke is clearly signaling the end of Jesus as a physically present physician and leader. The ascension actually clears out the fog of a couple of things. The ascension clears out the fog of death and it clears out the fog of Jesus as earthly king. We see in the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus the authoritative answer to this question. What happens after I die? What happens? Isn't the common phrase you guys hear? Well, no one can know. If you were to say, no, 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 I know with certainty. I know authoritatively. What will you be marked as by many people around you? Arrogant? cuckoo, someone's doing this, in the, in the, like, who do you think you are to have this? It's all about revelation. It's not that I'm guessing about this. I've seen the promises of God fulfilled. I've read carefully the words of Jesus. I'm looking at the life of Jesus. I know full well with authority because Jesus gave many assurances that we would be going where he was going. 
Then he left, catch this, alive and well and full of joyful blessing. Ascend simply means to go up. So like the very first moments of Jesus' life here on earth, a virgin-born baby in Bethlehem, the last days of Jesus on earth are deeply revealing to who Jesus is, but more than that, where he is, and even more than that, why it matters. So the fact that Jesus was born miraculously from a virgin young woman, and the fact that Jesus is taken away in a miraculous way, is showing us these things of where he came from and where he went back to. In Acts 1.9, Luke picks up this same thing. He says, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Think about this, church. Jesus left in broad daylight. He went up, up, and away. And he cleared up what was still foggy. Here's what he was clearing up. The ascension shows that the nature of Jesus' kingdom and rule is not of this world. Jesus was never interested in establishing a name for himself in an earthly way with an earthly kingdom. In fact, he actually exposes the folly of that. Mark 8.36 says this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So the ascension reminds us that Jesus is off preparing an eternal home. So don't get too comfortable or attached to this world. Don't make the horrific trade of gaining this world and losing the kingdom that Jesus offers. The ascension stamps complete. Think of some of the audacious claims that Jesus made while he was here. That he was God in the flesh. That he came from heaven. That he was doing God's work. And that he was going back to heaven when he was done. Well, guess what? He must be done. Because he goes up, up, and away right in front of them. Mission accomplished. He goes back to the Father where he came from. Done. Finished. It's over. Here's what it clears up for us, for the disciples. No more Jesus sightings. Don't look for Jesus sightings and for him to be doing the work. There's a shift. There's a change. So the ascension is mission accomplished for Jesus' earthly role, but not for ours. So that means the ascension is also a beginning, as in it's on. It's the beginning of a new era. Think about this. Why all the pomp and circumstance on Inauguration Day? Because it's representing new leadership, right? A new day has come. Someone was victorious over something else. In fact, Inauguration Day here in the United States is always a day of rejoicing and a day of mourning, right? It's a day filled with great hope. It's a day filled with great disappointment. Church, I hope you're paying attention to your own heart. I hope you're not making an idol of all things new. I hope you're not making an idol of your political party or president. Our help is from the Lord. Now imagine the heavenly pomp and circumstance, the party and pageantry that goes on when Jesus finishes up the work here on earth that changes eternity forever. The ascension is filled with joy because the ascension is a coronation. It's the start of a new age, a new era. You know, Philippians is a book um, of the Bible which gives commentary on what Jesus' life was all about. Turn to Philippians 2 for just a moment. I just want to show you a, a very familiar passage of Scripture that brings these things together. I want you to listen carefully in Philippians 2 for Christmas and Easter. Ready? Philippians 2, verse 6, talking about Jesus. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
Merry Christmas, right? There's the incarnation. Goes on, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. Now, verse 9 is the Father's response. Look at it. Verse 9, Philippians 2. Therefore, in light of the incarnation, in light of the resurrection, therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Doesn't it make sense if that's God's pronouncement on Jesus of what was just accomplished? There'd be some miraculous thing that would mark the end. There's no more fitting climax to his time on earth than the ascension. Listen to 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Provide the remedy, as we just sang. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Then listen to verse 21. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. How is Jesus doing right now? Awesome! He's alive and well. Where is Jesus right now? He's ruling at the Father's side. Mark 16, 19. So then, Jesus, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Work done, Jesus is now sitting. He's not resting, he's ruling. He's sitting because he's reigning with the Father. Sitting at God's right hand is sort of metaphor language for omnipotence, all knowledge and power. It's sort of shorthand. If I were to say this, oh, that's the guy with the Oval Office who lives in the big white house. We would all understand what I'm talking about. Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, not because he's resting, but because he's reigning. All right, so that's the divine start of things. It's the start of a new era. How about on the human front? What's going on with us? It's also the start with something with us. It's the start of the church. The ascension is the beginning of the church. Jesus leaves his mission and message in great hands. Not because humans are so crazy qualified for this. Not because the first disciples on paper looked like an awesome choice to take the whole practice and say, here you do it now. But rather because of spiritual qualifications. Church, you are called to live out your purpose and your identity. Listen to the way Jesus puts it to his followers. This is commonly called the Great Commission. Let me bump up in Luke 24, back to verse 46 for a moment. It says, thus it is written that Christ should suffer. Remember, Jesus goes back to the Scripture. He keeps pointing them back to the Scripture. You want to go forward? Look at what's already been entrusted to you. It's all right here. What does he do? He teaches them the writings of Moses, the law, the Psalms. What's that? It's the Bible. So Jesus is pointing, thus it is written that Christ must suffer, verse 47, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
That's Luke's version of the Great Commission. You can find it in all of the Gospels, reiterated in other places. You church individually, and you church collectively as Neighborhood Bible Church, and you church collectively as Capital C Church, all Christians, all places, through all of time, are called to fulfill the Great Commission. Specifically, today, now, we are to carry on the practice that Jesus initiated by word and by deed. In other words, by character and by action. Not just speaking about it, but doing it. The witnessing has been going on for 2,000 years. And church, think about it. The baton has been handed to you. Think back right now. Who is the person God used to have your eyes open to the good news of the gospel? Who was that person? Think about them right now. Someone told you the good news. They didn't make you a Christian. That's God's work. But someone used their mouth to explain to you the great news of what God has done for sinners and that there's hope in placing our faith in Him, not just for the forgiveness of sins, but for new life, life eternal that begins right now, new identity, new purpose. Someone handed the baton to you. Church, it's our turn By virtue of the fact that you are physically alive and spiritually alive in Jesus Christ, your time is right now. I love how Luke records the moments just after Jesus leaves. Just listen to Acts 1, or you can flip over a couple pages. Acts 1, 9, okay? It says, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, that's the ascension, there goes Jesus, broad daylight, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are angels, messengers of God, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They're standing there, they say, Show's over. It was clear, again, they're not to be looking for Jesus in their pancakes or sightings of going, where's the great physician? We need him here at the, at the practice. Jesus is coming back, but now the work is for us to do. The ascension is an ending. It's over. The ascension is a beginning. Go. Go. Start in Jerusalem. Go to the people you know in Samaria. Go to the uttermost parts of the globe. We have a highly competitive family. I grew up in a highly competitive family. I'm one of four boys. My mom, bless you, mom, you must have gotten sick of all the competition. In our home, somehow it's the same way. Um, We can make a race out of finishing dinner by eating. We can make a race out of who can hold their breath the longest without passing out. I mean, we just, it's always a a, a competition. And when someone issues some kind of a challenge, there's a sense, there's a response we do sometimes. Lucas is sitting over here. He's a pretty competitive guy. I mean, it could start as innocent as this. I bet you anything, I could, I could make it to that stop sign at the corner faster than you. And, and the response of someone in that setting in our home is this. Yeah, it's on. It's on, right? What does that mean? Challenge accepted. Let's do this. And when you say it's on, what do you expect? You expect something to happen. You expect to be in a fight. You're like, you're ready to go. We're, we're, we're doing this thing. The ascension is a beginning. Go, Jesus says. Wait in Jerusalem and then go. It's on. Neighborhood Bible Church. If you're new, by the way, it's really awesome. We have a visitor in here, which is great. Um, and I got to meet them, for, an out-of-state visitor. So we're exporting people all over the country. Someone finally exported someone here, I think just visiting. But welcome, super glad to have you. If you're new to Neighborhood Bible Church, this will be new to you, but if not, you've heard this before. But we are on a mission. Here's one of the ways we talk about it. We're on a mission to turn strangers into neighbors, and by God's grace, neighbors into family. I'll say it again. We're on a mission to turn strangers into neighbors, just getting to know their name, just being neighborly with them. And by God's grace, turning neighbors into family. I'm talking about eternal family spiritual brothers and sisters. Do you hear a divine work and a human work in that? 
God can't and won't go to your neighbor and introduce the two of you. That's your job. Go learn their name. Go learn their needs. Go just begin to be interested in people. They last forever. But there's a divine work here. That's why we say by God's grace, we turn neighbors into family. No one can wake the spiritually dead but God alone. No one can adopt people into his spiritual eternal home except God the Father alone. So there's a divine responsibility and there's a human responsibility. Church, it's on. Let's get on with our calling, with our work. Let me go back to our title here for this morning. This start-finish that's sort of blurred into one. The good doctor turns over his practice. What seems like the finishing line of a gospel is really the starting line for us. It really is a turning over of what Jesus came and set up. A hospital full of servants who practice holistic healing. That means this. If you're really into meeting physical needs because you are a doctor, one of my neighbors is a doctor, great. Some of you are feelers. You're incredibly attuned to people's emotions. You're so good at meeting and seeing and identifying and just coming alongside and and meeting emotional needs. Good. Relational needs. And some of you are great at just befriending people. You know, I need a friend. I bet that person needs a friend. Spiritual needs, financial needs, logistical needs, housing needs. On and on it goes, right? Church, meet the needs. This is what I'm talking about with holistic practice. It's what Jesus did. Jesus met physical needs and spiritual needs, spiritual needs and theological needs, relational needs and emotional needs. He did all of this and it just sort of bled one into the other. It really is a practice, by the way. Don't you love the passage that says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did? You have to actually do it. We don't just talk about it or theorize about it. We do what Jesus did. And it takes practice. Think about learning medicine, right? It takes practice to learn how to give someone a shot properly without injuring them. It takes practice, growth over time. So we receive what is administered to us from God, the great physician, and we intentionally walk with the wounded. We intentionally befriend and treat the sick in the power and character that God supplies. Look back at the text at verse 50 for a moment. I don't want you to miss this. It is huge to note where the ascension took place. The ascension is an ending, right? It's Jesus' coronation back up into heaven, but it's also a beginning, a great commissioning to them. It doesn't take place in what the great sort of locations of the gospel story would be. It doesn't take place in, Beth- in Bethlehem, right? If you're a movie director, you're like, maybe we bring it all back to Bethlehem. Nope. It doesn't take place in Jerusalem. The, the political and theological center of the entire Jewish nation where the temple is. That might be a logical spot. It doesn't take place there. How about in Rome or in Greece to signify that this thing's for the whole world? Let's go to a place of prominence, Let's go to New York City. Let's go to Washington, D.C. No, it doesn't take place in Rome or in Greece. Not on the Mount of Transfiguration. No, it takes place in Bethany. And he led them out as far as Bethany. Why is that important? Here's why. Bethany is the place of closest and sweetest fellowship with Jesus and his friends. It's that place of comfort where Jesus loved to linger. I'd call it his home away from home. Go look at how Bethany shows up in the Bible. So his ascension happened in broad daylight, so it would be a miraculous stamp of his deity, but notice that it takes place in a place of friendship to put a stamp on the intimacy. And lifting up his hands, our text says, he blessed them. Catch this, in the midst of blessing him, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. I can't read this text anymore without thinking back about 10 years ago. The last time my brothers and the spouses and the children were all together with my dad before he departed from here and went home to be with Jesus, he had a time of blessing on each 
of his sons and their family. And he could barely talk, and he just looked at each one of us. And that was in December, and he parted from us with blessing on his lips in January. Very soon after that, he lost the ability to talk. While blessing us, my dad was taken away weeks later. While blessing them, Jesus is taken away from them. What an assurance of his presence and blessing that it wasn't ending. It's just changing locations. Maybe this is why the disciples returned with such great joy. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Think about every parting you've ever had. The Gadinos left. I remember leaving them. Yes, we're Christians. Yes, we'll be together in spirit, but things were going to change right there. Think about every funeral you've been to of someone you've loved, even believers that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt, they're doing just fine. This departure is unlike almost any I can think of where they return with great joy. Their leader and king had just left them and they're thrilled about it. In the very act of blessing his friends, not only as rightful high priest, but as brother and intimate ally, Jesus departs. Just listen for the ascension language, Jesus going away, in this great passage about Jesus identifying with the lonely. This is Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest, listen to this, who has passed through the heavens. There it is. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We recognize Jesus went in, in perfect ending to the story here on earth. We also recognize that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need because he went with blessing on his lips and promised something powerful, which we'll look at right now. I hope the Great Commission stirs this message in you. How on earth can I possibly do this? Go and bear witness to the great things of God to everyone you meet. How can I possibly do this? How on earth can I do this? Here's how. Here's the answer. The answer is found in the question, by not leaning on powers from the earth. How on earth can I do this? By not leaning on powers from the earth. Look at verse 49. New Living Translation translates it this way. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised. But stay here in this city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Not if, but when. When you feel stuck. When you're not making headway. When you're confused. God, how am I supposed to be doing this? Look for power from heaven. Jesus, verse 44, reminded them of all the Bible had previously taught. Verse 45 and 46, then he opened their minds to understand. Verse 47, then he showed them how the gospel was to go out into all the world. Then he declared them to be witnesses. Then he promised them power for the mission. Who's doing the heavy lifting? Jesus opened their minds. Jesus showed them how the gospel, what the plan was. Jesus declared their identity. Jesus promises the power. Friends, God is on a mission with an end date. We're just saying this, that you're the one who who has come and is coming again. Why is God delayed in his coming? Not to keep you in your misery. Why is God delayed in his coming? Divine patience. Time for rebels to return. That's why. How long, O Lord? However long it takes in God's mind to allow every person on earth to have a chance to repent. Who's, who's on for, for, for participating in that through God's power? Us! God's delay is patience to the sinner. 
So God's on a mission with an end date. You are, number one, on his team working with him. Jesus says, you are my witnesses. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Not, you should act like salt, you should act like light. He says what? You are salt. You are light. So don't hide your light. Don't have your saltiness lose its flavor. You are my body. You are my sheep. That's your identity, church. So you're either on his team working with him, or you are an enemy working against him. Dave, that's really harsh. That's really narrow-minded. Take it up with Jesus. Sheep, goat. Weeds, wheat. 2 Peter 1, 8. Listen to this. Or I'm sorry, Matthew 12, 30. This is Jesus. Whoever is not with me is against me, Jesus said. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You are on Jesus' team, working with him. You are not on his team, an enemy working against him. Number three is this. I think it's possible to be on his team and sidelined and dormant. Here's what I mean by that. And here's where I get that. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Listen carefully. 2 Peter 1, 8 to 9. These are all in your handout, by the way, for reference. Listen for if, then. Cause and effect. Ready? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear it? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, if you're walking with the Lord and increasing in the Lord, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't that stand to reason that it's possible to have the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and be ineffective and unfruitful? Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It's talking about Christians. Christians, you can be so nearsighted that you're blind to the bigger realities of what God's doing. You can stop growing. You can be stuck. And you can have these qualities not yours and not increasing. And you become ineffective or unfruitful. I won't take time here, but go read John 15 about vines and branches and trimming that goes on. By the way, Luke wrote a sequel. Remember what it was? It's called the book of Acts. When you take Luke and Acts together, uh, Luke wrote much of the New Testament. Acts is a record of what Jesus promises at the end of Luke. It's showing it unfold. So in the book of Acts, they waited in Jerusalem as instructed. If a guy dies before your eyes, rises again, says, remember I promised all of this, and then is ascended before you, you listen to what he says. Wait here in Jerusalem. That happened in Acts. In Acts 2, Jesus sends the Spirit just as he promised. In Luke 8, they leave the city just as Jesus predicted. And repentance and forgiveness of sins by faith in Jesus is proclaimed to all nations. That's the rest of the book of Acts. So what we see in Acts is a fulfillment of what Jesus is laying out here at the end of Luke. I'm going to invite the band to come on up right now. And as we do, and as we wrap up, I want to shift our attention to offering for a moment. You know, Christians see all of life as a gift received. Whether that's a stimulus check or the air you have breathing in your lungs right now, your health, your energy, your vitality, all of life is a gift to be received. That means that we're not entitled owners, but we are instead grateful stewards. Check your heart, church. Are you an entitled owner of being able to live in the influential Bay Area? Or a grateful steward of that? Are you an entitled owner of your health because you work out and you eat kale? Woohoo! Or are you a grateful steward of the health and body God's given to you? What a thrill each week to generously and sacrificially give 
financially to carry on the Great Commission here and around the world. Did you know that every dollar that you give to Neighborhood Bible Church goes to fund the work of God here in this area and literally around the world? If you don't think you're involved in global missions, but you faithfully and generously give to Neighborhood Bible Church, you're involved in global missions. In fact, every dollar that you give here, 10 cents of that, 10% of our general budget right across the top goes straight to world missions. Other things are given in addition to that. But that's something we worked from from day one of the church. We said, wouldn't it be great to build up to a point where we could just say 10% go straight to world missions. So you are supporting those not in our midst to carry on what Jesus tells us to do. Those of you workers who are earning a paycheck here in the Silicon Valley, it's so much bigger than earning a paycheck. Christian, listen to me. At work this week, thank God that your work is worship. Not just the way you are at work or the way you carry out your work, but how you steer the funds that are entrusted to you. As grateful steward, we say, God, carry on the work. I can't go in that way that that person does, but I can work. You've given me abilities to earn money to support them. I am here, and the very few staff that we have, we are a staff light church in the American church. That's because we have so many people that I just kid around. I say they get paid in heaven. But I am, I am supported full-time. Andres is supported full-time. Lucas is supported part-time along with Jamie and Kelly and John. That's our staff. We're supported so we aren't working another job and doing this work. We get to throw ourselves wholeheartedly into this. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the great commission. Thank you for the clarity that we have as believers. That just as if one tiny part of our body is askew and not working or missing altogether... God, that we are less effective, that we are less energetic, that we are less healthy. And God, right now, I pray you would lift up the chin of every single believer. And God, that they could hear the message from you. You are important to a very important mission. You are not useless. You are a functioning, gifted part of this family, of this body. God, I pray that it would humble us to say, God, I don't know my part. I'm not living it out. Help me to rearrange my life to be on purpose for things that matter. God, there are needs all around this neighborhood. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. In Jesus' name.